Section 004 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John D. Nugent. Part the First. Book the First. Chapter One. Portland Bill. An obstinate north wind blew without ceasing over the mainland of Europe and yet more roughly over England, during all the month of December 1689 and all the month of January 1690. Hence the disastrous cold weather, which caused that winter to be noted as memorable to the poor, on the margin of the old Bible in the Presbyterian Chapel of the Nonjurors in London. Thanks to the lasting qualities of the old monarchical parchment employed in official registers, long lists of poor persons, found dead of famine and cold, are still legible in many local repositories, particularly in the archives of the Liberty of the Clink in the borough of Southwark, of Pie Powder Court, which signifies Dusty Feet Court, and in those of Whitechapel Court held in the village of Stepney by the bailiff of the Lord of the Manor. The Thames was frozen over, a thing which does not happen once in a century, as the ice forms on it with difficulty owing to the actions of the sea. Coaches rolled over the frozen river, and a fair was held with booths bear-baiting and bull-baiting. An ox was roasted whole on the ice. This thick ice lasted two months. The hard year 1690 surpassed in severity even the famous winters at the beginning of the 17th century so minutely observed by Dr. Gideon Deline, the same who was, in his quality of apothecary to King James, honored by the city of London with a bust and a pedestal. One evening, Toward the close of one of the most bitter days of the month of January 1690, something unusual was going on in one of the numerous inhospitable bites of the Bay of Portland, which caused the seagulls and wild geese to scream and circle round its mouth, not daring to re-enter. In this creek, the most dangerous of all which lined the bay during the continuance of certain winds, and consequently the most lonely, convenient by reason of its very danger for ships in hiding, a little vessel, almost touching the cliff, so deep was the water, was moored to the point of a rock. We are wrong in saying the night falls, we should say the night rises, for it is from the earth that obscurity comes. It was already night at the bottom of the cliff, it was still day at top, any one approaching the vessel's moorings would have recognized the Biscayan hooker. The sun, concealed all day by the mist, had just set. There was beginning to be felt that deep and sombrous melancholy which might be called anxiety for the absent sun. With no wind from the sea, the water of the creek was calm. This was, especially in winter, a lucky exception. Almost all the Portland creeks have sandbars, and in heavy weather the sea becomes very rough, and to pass in safety much skill and practice are necessary. These little ports, ports more in appearance than fact, 
are of small advantage. They are hazardous to enter, fearful to leave. On this evening, for a wonder, there was no danger. The Biscay hooker is of an ancient model, now fallen into disuse. This kind of hooker, which has done service even in the navy, was stoutly built in its hull. A boat in size, a ship in strength. It figured in the armada. Sometimes the war-hooker attained to a great tonnage. Thus the great griffin, bearing a captain's flag, and commanded by Lopez de Medina, measured six hundred and fifty good tons, and carried forty guns. But the merchant and contraband-hookers were very feeble specimens. Sea-folk held them at their true value, and esteemed the model a very sorry one. The rigging of the hooker was made of hemp, sometimes with wire inside, which was probably intended as a means, however unscientific, of in obtaining indications in the case of magnetic tension. The lightness of this rigging did not exclude the use of heavy tackle, the cabrai of the Spanish galleon, and the camille of the Roman triams. The helm was very long, which gives the advantage of a long arm of leverage, but the disadvantage of a small arc of effort. Two wheels in two pulleys at the end of the rudder corrected this defect, and compensated to some extent for the loss of strength. The compass was well housed in a case perfectly square, and well balanced by its two copper frames placed horizontally one in the other on little bolts as in Cardin's lamps. There was science and cunning in the construction of the hooker, but it was ignorant science and barbarous cunning. The hooker was primitive, just like the pram and the canoe, was kindred to the pram in stability and to the canoe in swiftness, and, like all vessels born of the instinct of the pirate and fisherman, it had remarkable sea qualities. It was equally well suited to landlocked and to open waters. Its system of sails, complicated in stays and very peculiar, allowed of its navigating trimly in the close bays of Asturias, which are little more than enclosed basins, as passages, for instance, and also freely out at sea. It could sail around a lake, and sail round the world. A strange craft with two objects, good for a pond and good for a storm. The hooker is among vessels what the wagtail is among birds, one of the smallest and one of the boldest. The wagtail perching on a reed scarcely bends it, and, flying away, crosses the ocean. These Biscay hookers, even to the poorest, were gilt and painted. Tattooing is part of the genius of those charming people, savages to some degree. The sublime coloring of their mountains, variegated by snows and meadows, reveals to them the rugged spell which ornament possesses in itself. They are poverty-stricken and magnificent. They put coats of arms on their cottages, they have huge asses, which they bedizen with bells, and huge oxen, on which they put head-dresses of feathers. Their coaches, which you can hear grinding the wheels two leagues off, are illuminated, carved, and hung with ribbons. A cobbler has a bas-relief on his door, 
It is only St. Crispin and an old shoe, but it is in stone. They trim their leathern jackets with lace. They do not mend their rags, but they embroider them. Vivacity profound and superb. The Basques are, like the Greeks, children of the sun, while the Valencian drapes himself bare and sad in his russet woolen rug with a hole to pass his head through. The natives of Galicia and Biscay have the delight of fine linen shirts, bleached in the dew. Their thresholds and their windows teem with faces fair and fresh, laughing under garlands of maize. A joyous and proud serenity shines out in their ingenious arts, in their trades, in their customs, in the dress of their maidens, in their songs. The mountain, that colossal ruin, is all aglow in Biscay. The sun's rays go in and out of every break. The wild Yaitzkevil is full of evils. Biscay is Pyrenean grace as Savoy is Alpine grace. The dangerous bays, the neighbors of St. Sebastian, Lezo, and Fontaribia, with storms, with clouds, with spray flying over the capes, with the rages of the waves and the winds, with terror, with uproar, mingled boat women crowned with roses. He who has seen the Basque country wishes to see it again. It is the blessed land. Two harvests a year, villages resonant and gay, a stately poverty. All Sunday the sound of guitars, dancing, castanets, love-making, houses clean and bright, storks in the belfries. Let us return to Portland, that rugged mountain in the sea. The peninsula of Portland, looked at geometrically, presents the appearance of a bird's head, of which the bill is turned toward the ocean, the back of the head towards Weymouth, the isthmus is its neck. Portland, greatly to the sacrifice of its wilderness, exists now but for trade. The coasts of Portland were discovered by quarrymen and plasterers toward the middle of the seventeenth century. Since that period, what is called Roman cement has been made of the Portland stone, a useful industry, enriching the district and disfiguring the bay. Two hundred years ago, these coasts were eaten away as a cliff, today as a quarry. The pick bites meanly, the wave grandly, hence a diminution of beauty. To the magnificent ravages of the ocean have succeeded the measured strokes of men. These measured strokes have worked away the creek where the Biscay hooker was moored. To find any vestige of the little anchorage now destroyed, the eastern side of the peninsula should be searched, toward the point beyond Folly Pier and Dirtle Pier, beyond Wakeham even, between the place called Church Hope and the place called Southwell. The creek, walled in on all sides by precipices higher than its width, was minute by minute becoming more overshadowed by evening. The misty gloom, unusual at twilight, became thicker. 
It was like a growth of darkness at the bottom of a well. The opening of the creek seaward, a narrow passage, traced on the almost night-black interior of a pallid rift where the waves were moving. You must have been quite close to perceive the hooker moored on the rocks and, as it were, hidden by the great cloaks of shadow. A plank thrown from on board on to a low and level projection of the cliff, the only point on which a landing could be made, placed the vessel in communication with the land. Dark figures were crossing and recrossing each other on this tottering gangway, and in the shadow some people were embarking. It was less cold in the creek than out at sea, thanks to the screen of rock rising over the north of the basin, which did not, however, prevent the people from shivering. They were hurrying. The effect of the twilight defined the forms as though they had been punched out with a tool. Certain indentations in their clothes were visible, and showed that they belonged to the class called in England the ragged. The twisting of the pathway could be distinguished vaguely in the relief of the cliff. A girl who lets her staylace hang down trailing over the back of an armchair describes, without being conscious of it, most of the paths of cliffs and mountains. The pathway of this creek, full of knots and angles, almost perpendicular and better adapted for goats than men, terminated on the platform where the plank was placed. The pathways of cliffs ordinarily imply a not very inviting declivity. They offer themselves less as a road than as a fall. They sink rather than incline. This one, probably some ramification of a road on the plain above, was disagreeable to look at, so vertical was it. From underneath you saw it gain by zigzag the higher layer of the cliff where it passed out through deep passages onto the high plateau by a cutting in the rock, and the passengers for whom the vessel was waiting in the creek must have come by this path. Accepting the movement of embarkation which was being made in the creek, a movement visibly scared and uneasy all around was solitude. No step no noise, no breath was heard. At the other side of the roads, at the entrance of Ringstead Bay, you could just perceive the flotilla of shark-fishing boats, which were evidently out of their reckoning. These polar boats had been driven from Danish into English waters by the whims of the sea. Northerly winds play these tricks on fishermen. They had just taken refuge in the anchorage of Portland, a sign of bad weather expected and danger out at sea. They were engaged in casting anchor. The chief boat, placed in front after the old manner of Norwegian flotillas, all her rigging standing out in black above the white level of the sea, and in front might be perceived in the hook iron, loaded with all kinds of hooks and harpoons, destined for the Greenland shark, the dogfish, and the spinuous shark, as well as the nets to pick up the sunfish. Except a few other craft, all swept into the same corner, the eye met nothing living on the vast horizon of Portland. Not a house, not a ship. The coast in those days was not inhabited, and the roads, at that season, 
were not safe. Whatever may have been the appearance of the weather, the beings who were going to sail away in the Biscayan Urca pressed on the hour of departure all the same. They formed a busy and confused group, in rapid movement on the shore. To distinguish one from another was difficult, impossible to tell whether they were old or young. The indistinctness of evening intermixed and blurred them. The mask of shadow was over their faces. They were sketches in the night. There were eight of them, and there were seemingly among them one or two women, hard to recognize under the rags and tatters in which the group was attired, clothes which were no longer man's or woman's. Rags have no sex. A smaller shadow, flitting to and fro among the larger ones, indicated either a dwarf or a child. It was a child. End of section 004, book 1, chapter 1 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Recording by John D. Nugent, Van Nuys, California.